Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in our question series, and this conversation is called Heretic? Question mark? And the question for you to get started with today is, is there an aspect of your faith in which someone else might call you a heretic? Enjoy. understand that in every season of the church, there's always a controversial topic that comes up as humanity evolves and advances and moves forward. And I get that when this topic came up, it was difficult for the church of, well, what does this actually mean? What if we actually accept that? How does that change the dynamics of who we are as a church and what we believe about the Bible and government got involved and they had to make some choices based on where culture and society was moving? Are we going to accept this as well? And I get that the church is always one of the last people to kind of come to the reality that, well, humanity has evolved. And in this time, there was people asking questions such as, like, what if we do this? Won't this be a slippery slope? Well, if we agree with this, what does this mean for the Bible? If we agree with this, what does this mean about God? And churches all over the place were in an uproar that this can't possibly be who we're becoming and where society is going to. And there was splits, and there was frustration, and there was hurt, and there was pain. And that, my friends, was 1633 when Galileo told us these crazy heretical words that the earth revolves around the sun. What? Right? The Pope was frustrated. They had a tribunal for Galileo. Everyone wanted to know, well, if we say this, that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is a firmament. And of course, we want to take the Bible literally. And a firmament are these giant poles that hold up the sky, and it holds up this giant platform that is the actual Hebrew for what that means, right? And what it means is that the sun is revolving in this firmament around the earth. And if the Bible says it, then it must be true. And if the Bible says it, then it must be literal, is what they were saying. And so the problem is, is that they put Galileo through this tribunal, and here's the things that they said about him. We pronounce and judge and declare that you, the said Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently, 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 English is my first language. Suspected by this holy office of heresy, come on, right? This holy office of heresy, that is, of having believed and held the doctrine which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the sun is the center of the world and that it does not move from east to west and that the earth does move and is not the center of the world. And Galileo was not allowed to leave his home and he died there, a heretic for the next three 
hundred years. The point is this, is that sometimes we get better information. Sometimes things evolve and move forward. And that doesn't mean that the Bible's not true. It might mean that the Bible's not literal. We say that in here all the time. We take the Bible seriously, not literally. The desire to take the Bible literally is not even orthodox, by the way. Because for 1,800 years in the church, we didn't even take the Bible literally in the same way that we do now. We took it allegorically, we took it metaphorically, we had different interpretations, whether you lived in the East or whether you lived in the West, depending on which part of the world you lived in. It's the last 200 years, primarily of fundamentalism, right, that happened in the United States, that we began to take it literally in a different way in response to science, because we were scared. We were scared that there was a change coming that affects the way that we live into the world. And then we believed if we're scared about this, then we know who else is scared about this. God, right? God must be terrified. And then at that time and place in the history, he must be very terrified, right? Um, because God was a very specific thing that must be scared because this God was a lot like a king and this king wants certain decrees in a very specific way. And if these things don't happen in a very specific way, then the whole thing's gonna fall apart until it doesn't. And so there's been so many examples throughout history where things change. And that doesn't mean that God or the Bible or Christianity are any less true. It just means that we're growing and that we're evolving and that we're maturing. And, but people will say to me things all the time like, well, we can't just pick and choose the Bible, Corey. You are all doing that anyways, all of the time. Or you'll say, well, the whole Bible is equal. That's not even what orthodoxy teaches. Orthodoxy teaches that the gospels and Torah have precedence other over parts of the Bible. In 75% of Christianity around the world, which is not Protestantism, by the way, it's Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And then in half of Protestantism, which is liturgical churches, they follow what? A church calendar. And what is read every week? The Gospels. And then other verses are added. The church historically doesn't see the Bible that way. And so there's these flaws. There's this Swiss cheese with the whole argument about which perspective is correct. And then the problem is, is that if you go throughout church history, you will see at different times that we've all pointed fingers and called the other a heretic. I grew up in a really wonderful place in Colorado where there was only evangelicals and all of my Catholic brothers and sisters, which were demons at that time, were going to hell, my friends, right? And I knew Catholics who told me that as Protestants, we were going where? They were just passing on the favor. And then I love, I remember talking to my wife's grandfather and he said, you know, one day, and by the way, he's like the sweetest man in the world, so I don't mock him at all. Like he's like a genuinely beautiful man. But I remember this conversation always and I loved it so much. One day I know in heaven, the Methodists will be there. <laughs> the Lutherans will be there, right? The Presbyterians will be there and I'll get to look at them and say, I told you so right? Because he was a good Baptist pastor. He did not say the Catholics, mind you, right? <laughs> but the point is we need to stop passing on the favor and we need to stop pretending that somewhere out there, there is this absolute interpretation of the Bible that everyone agrees upon. That's just not true for all of church history. That's just not true today. And it's never been true. 
And so instead of looking for uniformity, we should look for unity. Uniformity says there's only been one view and one interpretation, and this is how it's always been, until you read a book and you realize that's not true. Unity is the goal that we're moving for, and maybe, what if just maybe, God is interested in the diversity of our interpretations? What if maybe, just maybe, it's the diversity of our interpretations that tells us how we are experiencing and encountering the risen Christ? Now that's a little bit more interesting. Because the New Testament, when it was put together, the way that it was put together was simply this. The only authors that the church finally canonized, canonized is a fancy word for saying, these are the books of the Bible that we're finally gonna pick, that started in 326 AD at everyone's favorite Council of Nicaea, happened over the next 400 years over eight other um, different church councils, right? So it took a long time to decide upon this. And what was decided upon was first and foremost was the person who wrote this letter an apostle which simply means this, did they encounter and see the risen Christ? Why was that important? Because it was about practice and experience and transformation. And their narrative of practice, experience, and transformation, it wasn't about rearranging the theological furniture until we all see it the same way. That's why you have a James and you have a Peter and you have a Paul, and guess what they do at times? They disagree, right? We've talked about this in here a million times. Don't believe me, go read Galatians 1 and 2. When Paul says to Peter, you fool, stop telling the Christians in Antioch to be like the Christians in Jerusalem. They're not gonna get circumcised or eat your food because they're not Jewish, right? So the evidence of evolution is throughout the entire scriptures. The evidence of God's desire for unity and not uniformity is evidence throughout the entire scriptures and throughout tradition, and even more than that, throughout your real experience in life. How many people do you meet that at first, maybe at some part of your life, you said, oh, they're different than me, and there was a tribalism that was taught to you. They're different, they're wrong, they're not okay. And then guess what happens? You have a barbecue with them, and you realize, Dale? That mother was going to hell two weeks ago. <laughs> and today, he or she or whoever is just a good person. And I love them. And if Christ can be in me, is it possible that Christ could be in them? So I want to talk about the heretic conversation today, but I want to be honest about what the question represents again. This is not an apologetics, let me tell you why someone shouldn't call you a heretic because they've actually never read a book before. Um, which is partly what I want to do. What I would really want to say is, I want to honor your experience and your encounter with the risen Christ. I want to honor your experience and your encounter with this God who is bigger than any of our doctrines and any of our dogmas and any of our creeds. Those doctrines and dogmas and creeds are important because you know what they tell you? That somewhere at some point, someone else encountered and experienced this risen Christ. And now they're telling about it. But we don't just try to keep moving backwards so that we can experience their experience. It's not about secondhand information. It's about firsthand experience and a firsthand encounter. And so I don't care who's calling who a heretic because that game is just not interesting on planet Earth anymore. 
What I'm interested in is honoring our own experiences, honoring the real pain and suffering of why someone has called you that, and moving towards a place where we find healing and transformation and maturity. So my brothers and sisters, if we're gonna talk about heresy, let's talk about some things. We already talked about Galileo. We're gonna play Guess the Heretic, everybody's favorite game on a Sunday morning. We're gonna talk about itching ears, fear, what it means to be a new creation, clean your own mirror, my fave, Vincent Van Gogh, this is not your table, and then my brother and sister-in-law, Ryan and Shelley Leto, I hope you will listen to this podcast one day, guys, because I love you very much. So, let's talk about this. Guess the heretic. There's a heresy that happened in the church, and I'm gonna say it's still happening in the church, and I want you to name the group when you think you know who it is, all right? This group of people assumes that they have the interpretation of the Bible 100% correct. Start there. This group of people interprets that the Bible tells you that the flesh, that the body, that the physical is evil and wrong and harmful. Who just said that? Yeah, come on, seminary people, you know? You can't play. Here's the deal, if you have 60,000 in debt or more of a theological education, you are not allowed to play this game. So, okay, okay. So fast. Well, really killed my punchline. Thanks, Mariel. Yeah, you get a prize, all right. Yeah, yeah. A high five, everyone, Mariel, round of applause. You get a free Dodger ticket, except you don't, unless you really need it. So. What's funny, okay, so I was telling a friend about this this week. He was calling me, he's like, hey, I just listened to the podcast on sin and I have all these questions. And I told him I was talking about Gnosticism this week. He's like, Nas? Like the rapper Nas, the system? I'm like, exactly. That one's for you, Stu Wan. I hope you hear that as well. Gnosticism has a lot of parallels to evangelicalism is where I was gonna get to. There is this view that has come up because of puritanical thinking in American theology over the years that the body is bad. Gnosticism early in the church was deemed a heresy because it didn't honor incarnationalism, which was what? This idea that Jesus is fully human and fully God. It's not one or the other, it's both and all of the time. That Jesus shows us the very best of who God is and the very best of what it means to be human. We need both of those things. But the culture that I grew up in, in American Christianity, eventually had this level of asceticism to it in which the spiritual and divine was good and the physical matter was bad. And we use language like, oh, well, that's a part of the flesh, right? Which is not even properly using how the Bible is using the word flesh. Another sermon for another day. And then what it does is it begins to affect all the other ways that we see the world. Now it doesn't matter about ecology because the rapture is gonna happen and the physical world is bad and God's gonna burn this thing up. So who gives a shit about the polar bears? But seriously, right, there's implications to these things. Most everyone I know who grew up in American Christianity has an unhealthy view of sexuality. Homosexual, right, heterosexual, whatever sexual, we have unhealthy, repressive, or oppressive views of sexuality because we didn't know what to do with the body over the last 200 years. And in the early church, it was very important that we honor the body because one of the things that the good news was doing is it was breaking the systems of the actual physical kingdoms of this world. And so, the people of Jesus would invite people to the table, whether they were slaves or whether they were masters, whether they were servants or whether they were senators, right? Whether they were male or whether they were female, whether they were 
um, what are the ones I've already said? Jews or Greek? That everyone gets invited to the table. Like your physical embodied person actually matters to God, right? And that even when Jesus is resurrected, Jesus is not like this imaginary floating ghost, that Jesus shows you his real physical scars and wounds. And that has real implications for how we live in the world. And yet there's part of us 1,800 years later after Gnosticism was deemed a heresy in the church that still grew up in a world that basically practiced it. So my point is this, is that it's not about being perfect in your interpretation of your theology. It's about being gracious to other people in their imperfect process of interpreting who God is. Because if not, then we're all gonna do a lot of finger pointing and that's just not that interesting to me. Let's look at this itching ear passage, which is one of my favorites. I love seeing it on Facebook, 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word of God, be prepared whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, because they're all patiently correcting, my friends. Rebuke and encourage your people with good teaching for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear and they will reject the truth and chase after myths. Anyone ever heard that fun one? Right. And do you wanna know what that passage has almost nothing to do with? Sexuality, uh, any basically modern factor that we're dealing with today? The, the, that passage actually has a very specific context, and it comes in 2 Timothy 2. It talks about this. Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. So again, this is the good news that he preaches, which is all about that Jesus comes from this Jewish lineage and that Jesus was raised from the dead. And what does that affect? It's a challenge to Gnosticism. It's saying you need to believe in a physical resurrection about Jesus because it has implications for who and how we live in the world. And we want you to believe that this isn't some like secret message in which you have to say the secret prayer and raise your hand at the specific time. This is all about that this thing comes from a broader tradition and we're living into that deeper heritage. That's the good news that Paul preaches. And because I preach this good news, I am suffering, I've been chained like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. So I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. The whole book of 2 Timothy is a response to Gnosticism. It's a response to the physical resurrection and the implications behind it. So when somebody proof texts this verse for you on Twitter or Facebook, they don't actually know what they're talking about. And I don't say that like in an arrogant way. I say it of like, we have context for a reason and that's incredibly important. If not, instead of scripture being this beautiful thing that brings about health and life and healing in people's lives, it begins to be used as a weapon that tears down people and cuts them in half and makes them feel like less than a person. And that is never the intentions of the scriptures. And so sometimes we need to look at these things in broader perspectives. And so when people are talking about itching ears, the thing I always say to that is, if you wanna talk about itching ears, let's talk about this that the Bible talks about certain kinds of sexuality eight times. And it talks about greed, and it talks about power hundreds of times. And we live in a culture and a society that loves what two things? Greed and power. And are most churches challenging greed and power? No. So who's got the itching ears? Seriously, who's got the itching ears? Do we talk about the military industrial complex? Do we talk about how we have $700 billion that we put towards airplanes and killing people and doing all kinds of things all over the world and yet we have the capability of feeding everybody? 
How is that loving your enemy? I'm not saying there's not complications there, but let's talk about what the Bible talks about. And it challenges the empire from the beginning to the end. Mark 1.1, this is the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And if you've been in here before, you know that. Jesus the Christ, they're calling him a king. Good news was what Caesar Augustus proclaimed everywhere Caesar Augustus went to proclaim Pax Romana, that Rome was raping and pillaging and killing people so that Rome could have peace, right? It's the same word that Caesar Augustus used before Jesus. And he calls himself the son of God. And Jesus calls himself the son of God. Why? Because Caesar Augustus called himself the son of God. Those are political terms. And why did you not grow up in churches that knew that was a political term? Because we're the powerful. And when you're the powerful, it is much easier to proclaim that anyone who challenges that system, they've got the itching ears, my friends, because they might mess up your normal. And normal feels safe. But normal is terrifying because normal is when powerful people do corrupt things. You put the list back up there, Marks. So I want to talk about fear. When we think about all of this, all I want to say before we get into like some positive stuff, because that feels a little bit heavy, all right? Yeah, we're just not here to crap on people. That's no fun. Now, anytime we talk about heresy, I don't think that people are malicious and I don't think that people are insidious. I honestly think that as most human beings, we just have fear built into us sometimes. And fear is based on change. And as human beings, we don't love change. And you know what's really scary in the world that we live in for a lot of people? The world is moving at an incredibly rapid rate, right? And it started a while ago. The, the story about Galileo, I, I gave this sermon once years ago here, is that that train left the station and it's never going back. No one is going back to sit on that platform and be like, we're gonna fight so that people really know that the earth is the center of the universe. No, you're not. The train left the station. And you know what's scary for some people is on conversations like sexuality, the train left the station. On conversations like women rights, the train left the station. Are we there perfectly yet? We're not. The conversation around what race you are and slavery, the train left the station and it's never going back. Have we arrived to wherever that train is going? We have not. But that terrifies people that the world will never make a reverse move on this one. And that's scary because it's just different than the world that people grew up in. And so when we experience fear and we experience that change is happening, usually we use power and security to protect that thing. And in the real world, we use power and security to kill other people so that they don't mess with our values and the way that we want life. And in the church world, we use our words. We don't kill them now. We make sure that they're going to be killed in an eternal life to come. Human beings have the same tactics, whether it's government or church. And we say that we just got to know the reality that people aren't malicious and insidious. People just don't like change. And guess what? You don't like change either. I don't like change all that much. But we have to be open to the reality of how God is evolving and moving us forward as a species. So the things I want to talk about, and here's the positive stuff, is simply this. First, we want to be new creation. That we can get into a debate about heresy all day long, and we can point the fingers, and we can use our Bible verses, and someone else can use their Bible verses. And guess what? In the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, there was four church splits that happened, and now we have over 15,000 denominations. So that tactic didn't work. So let's stop doing that tactic and let's just begin to talk about what I think the scriptures and life experience will actually show me, which is this, that God doesn't care about the debate about who's the heretic and not who's the heretic. God just cares about this. Are you a new creation? 
If you're experiencing this God, is it reflective in your life? Listen to this passage from Paul in Galatians 6. It says this, it doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. Or the Message Bible says it this way, For my part, I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Master Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting in to the little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all of this? It's not what you and I do, submit to circumcision, reject circumcision, or in our context, fill in the blank. That's not the interesting thing. What's interesting, it is what God is doing, and God is creating something totally new, a free life. That's the interesting thing. Do you experience a free life? Then who cares what somebody's calling you? And I know that those things are painful. I know there's real implications, but at some capacity, we have to move past it. And all that we can do is do our part in the world of cleaning our mirror. One of my favorite mystics is St. Bonaventure, and St. Bonaventure talks about this reality, is that we clean our own mirror so that we can best reflect God in the world. What we can't do is clean other people's mirrors for them. There is no possibility of changing people, places, or things. It is an impossibility. What I can do is encounter and deal with my own transformed life and allow that transformation to leak out upon people. Because if it's a debate about the Bible and theology, it's just gonna get ugly. If it's a debate about what does your life actually look like, no one gets to challenge that. And let them challenge it. And I don't say this like casually, I say this in a very real way as somebody who's experienced a lot of loss. It was November in 2012 and I sat at the Thanksgiving table with my entire family and I told them that I had an idea for this church called New Abbey. And I began to tell them about this church, what I was thinking it would become and how I wanted it to be inclusive and be practice oriented and allow for conversation and all of these other things. And they started asking me questions about who's informed uh, this idea a little bit. And I said, oh, I, I hang out with this guy named Rob Bell. That was my first mistake. <laughs> that I met Rob in May of 2012 when we developed a friendship and a mentorship. And then all of a sudden, I remember the next day in November 2012, after Thanksgiving, my mom calls me in tears and just wonders, what went wrong? What went wrong that you have just left the faith and you've left the fold and you've left the church and you're just following heresy? I watched a YouTube video on Franklin Graham and he told me about how bad Love Wins was. I was like, wow, that is very fascinating. Because what you didn't do is have the conversation with your actual son first, right? You went to watching a YouTube video and there's the miss. The miss was, Can you look into the mirror of my life and can you tell me if I've experienced a transformation, maturity, and health in Christ or not? Let's not go to the YouTube videos about he said, she said. That's just not helpful. And if I'm being frank, what's happened in my life over time is, and this is hard, I don't get invited to Thanksgiving anymore. And when it came time that they knew that gay people were in my church, and that we had a gay pastor. I have zero relationship with my immediate family and my extended family anymore because I would dare to love somebody who's gay. I would dare to proclaim the reality that you could have a freedom greater than the narrative that I grew up with. And the narrative that I grew up with was that everyone I knew was saved and everyone else was going to hell, except the problem for me is that everyone who I knew that was saved was a real asshole. And I just began to challenge that. 
And there's not a day that happens where I don't think of my mom or my dad. And it's a lot of other broken relationships. It's not just this stuff. That I don't think of my extended family. That is just the thing that led to the things behind the things, behind the things, behind the things. And so I'm, a, I'm aware of the cost, so to speak. And that's not like, oh, I'm a victim, or you should praise me. That's, I can't change people, places, or things. I can't get into a debate with them. I've tried, that doesn't help. All I can do is appropriately love God and love people in my life, and people are gonna respond to that how they will. I can do nothing else. Thanks for it. And all you can do is clean your own mirror. And it may come at a cost, but what I experience in this community every week, and this is the thing I'm thankful for, is that you people take seriously cleaning your own mirrors. You take seriously examining your own lives. You take seriously the reality of having ownership and becoming self-aware. You take seriously words like repentance in a much bigger perspective than like, the weird morality that we've made it over the last 150 years. You take seriously a word like repentance in the perspective that you have in the world that's getting much bigger. I've never been a part of a community who, of people who take so seriously their transformation. So other people may challenge and question that, but you're already doing the work of being a new creation and cleaning your own mirror. And for that, you should be applauded. And for that, you should be thankful because that's the most important work in the world. Van Gogh. One of the problems that we get into in all of these conversations is that when you look at a Van Gogh painting, there's all these like thousands of little brushstrokes, right? And people often want to do that when they talk about God or when they talk about the Bible. They want to examine all of the individual little brushstrokes, but they don't want to step back and see the bigger picture. And the problem is that when we do that, sometimes we miss the real flow of what's happening here. And the flow that I see of God that I experience, whether that's in my own personal life or in the Bible or in Christian tradition, is this freedom that scripture and God and tradition is moving towards. A freedom that every single human being would know that they are a son and a daughter of the divine. That every single human being would know that they are loved. That every single human being would know that they are enjoyed. That's what the bigger painting is moving towards. We can get lost in a lot of the finer brushstrokes. It's just not helpful. So every time that somebody wants you to get out the microscope and to have the debate about this single brushstroke over here, what I would recommend to you is don't play that game. Just step back, experience the bigger picture and flow of what God's doing in this world because you cannot control people, places, or things. Keep cleaning your own mirror and experiencing your own transformation don't get lost in all of the breadcrumb trails that people are trying to take you down. And then finally, I want to move towards this, that one of the things that we can practice if we're experiencing our own transformation and if we're experiencing being new creations is all we can do is sit at this table. I used to say things like invite everybody to the table, but here's the reality. It's not your table. And it's not their table. It's God's table. And at this table, everyone is already invited. What I imagine happens in this table as I picture it myself is you're probably sit, sitting around some people who are a little bit more like you. Those are the conversations that you're having. And at the far ends of each of these tables, there's people that aren't like you. And my view of eternity, so to speak, is this reality. My view of the present, so to speak, and eternity, how we put all these things together, it's just my ability to move down the table and to keep experiencing more people who are other or different than me. And my goal as a human being is to work my way down to the very end of the table to the person who I think has the least humanity, who has most upset me, who has most hurt me. That's the job that we're invited to. The table's already set for us. 
It's about our ability to be able to move up and down that table to see that if Christ is truly in me, then Christ can truly be even in my worst enemies. Ryan and Shelley Leto. We'll close with this. My brother and sister-in-law, who I love dearly. After we started New Abbey, about a year into it, uh, we were at their house one night, and they like came hot at me again about like the Rob Bell stuff and gay people and all kinds of other stuff. It was real fun. Um, and I remember we talked for like four hours in their living room, but it was this moment of transformation with me and my brother and sister-in-law. Where after that night, what we, what we committed to is loving one another and we were committed to the long conversation, even if we don't always agree on everything. Because the point was not about agreeing or disagreeing, it was about being in the conversation. And as the years have gone on, we see the world in very different ways. My brother-in-law is a proud wearing, make America great again, second amendment, white evangelical in Wisconsin who voted for Donald Trump. Shockingly, I'm not. But what I love is that we literally talk every single day through text and just like, hey, help me understand this. Or he says, help me understand this. And we're just engaged in the long conversation. My sister-in-law, who I love, she always says, I'm more of a moderate. I'm not really a conservative. No, she's a closet progressive. If you look at her bookshelf, it is like a litany of heretics on there, people, right? <laughs> it's like Donald Miller and Rob Bell and Rachel Held Evans and Jen Hatmaker, all the people who are slowly being ostracized by the evangelical church, right? There's this process that she's going to because once you unsee, my friends, you cannot, once you see, you cannot unsee. There is just no going back. Even in your own life, once you have a little taste of this larger freedom and this bigger good news, you just can't go back. The train just does not have a reverse button. But the process was not just for them, the process was also for me. That I need to be in conversation with people who are further along in the table one way or the other. And it's never about where I'm sitting is the right place at the table. It's just where I'm sitting is a different place at the table. And I need to do my best effort to participate in the long conversation with others and my best effort to clean my own. Would you ask these questions with one another? Who do you want to talk to and find healing with at the table? Nice and light. Find the same people, enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.